0: Welcome, Austin, Al, and Jim. Today, I thought we'd talk about a couple of things. First, I'm, I'm going to talk about SPI and how they uh, got into fantasy and and science fiction. And then we're going to talk about Jim's greatest hits. Uh, Jim, there were a number of science fiction and fantasy games that uh, SPI did. Uh, probably the one that's the best known is that you did a number of Lord of the Rings games. How did that all come about?
1: Uh, We got a license. We had to pay. Uh, And uh, it was as simple as that. You know, we were were early on. uh, Anybody who came after us paid a lot more. Uh, I don't know how long that license went, but, you know, we shipped a lot of product. That also got us into... uh, what was it? Toys R Us, not Toys R Us. Um, uh, one of the big uh, retail outlets. Anyway, um, uh, it was in a it was in a hard box, uh, and it was a good game. Uh, I didn't have a lot to do with the design. I was not into fantasy and science fiction much, Well, science fiction a little, but not much in the fantasy at all. I think Richard Berg and uh, Greg Stickin, and uh, they they pretty much took the lead. I think I don't have the credit on that one. I uh, who's I don't know who's credited for design. It's uh, it's
0: Richard Berg and I think yeah. uh, uh, the other gentleman you mentioned,
1: Greg Justikian, Yeah, right. Uh, they uh, they did a good job, um, and that came out quite well. In fact, Richard Berg, you know, he passed away what three or four years ago. Yeah, a couple of uh, years ago. Yeah, he he had a fairly illustrious career after SBI. He, I think, was one of the most prominent, you know, post-SBI publish, uh, uh designers. Uh, yeah, him and after, Mark Herman. Yeah. He and Mark Herman's right behind him. They worked together a lot. Right. So the legacy, you know, lived on. I, I sort of kept an eye, and I got on mailing lists. I was put on mailing lists for various publishers, and I got some of the gossip. And I, I even got sent some of the games. Uh, the good stuff, you know. Uh, the the hobby has had, had changed. Uh, After the uh, computer games came out In fact, uh, I think this is something that I uh, I was surprised Well, I shouldn't have been Uh, I took over again for about a year and a half In 89, 90 So, whatever When it was uh, was run by an outfit Not Decision Games, but the outfit before them Uh, 3W, yeah Yeah, 3W And one of the things I did was I, I got back control of the feedback system and, uh, I ran some of the questions we had run on periods and, and demographics and sure as well, it, what happened was what I was not a surprise that first of all, uh, there were very few new gamers coming online, you know, uh, in the 1980s, uh, computer games were becoming the, de- the thing, you know, the, uh, the sort of Uber geeks, you know, that we attracted all switched over to computer games. now. That was no surprise. One of the uh, – at the last few Origins uh, conventions I attended, one of my lectures was Napoleon at IBM. And I basically from what I understood then, which was fairly accurate, I was about 10 years too soon, uh, I described how you know computer games would take over, why they would take over. Um, uh, one thing I underestimated was the first-person shooters. I mean there are still a lot of strategic-type games, which is basically what the SBI games were. Uh but the first person shooters, and it wasn't a surprise when it happened because I realized these are arcade games. Uh you know, the ones you had to literally go into an arcade to play. Uh, but uh, Nintendo and the you know the game consoles, which are still around. Although today most of those games are played on PCs. Uh that's why you have so many PCs with, you know, uh, really pumped up uh, GPUs as they call them, video cards. Um and uh but there was still you know a small market now what happened was after the Cold War ended I ran a survey right after the uh, yeah I was there long enough for the Cold War to end 1990 91. and and, uh, and bingo like a like a rock interest in c- contemporary uh, warfare you know uh, plummeted uh, and it was basically picked up by the older periods uh, civil war uh, you know, pre-20th century and what have you. Uh, that uh, Contemporary games have since come back. Partially that's due to Joe Miranda and decision games. I think right. Joe has finally broken my record for the total number of games, uh, published games uh, in his lifetime. Uh, he's welcome to it. Uh, but he, he does good work. And uh, he did a lot of contemporary games. Uh, there, there, Over the years, there were games in Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, uh, right. Korea uh you name it, you know yeah uh, they ha- they actually have a um
0: a magazine dedicated to modern war, and just, out of all the game publishers, they're the ones that push the modern stuff the most,
1: yeah, and they seem to have hung on to the feedback uh you know that's something a lot of people didn't realize how important that was, you know it's great if you can give the people what they don't know they want, but if you just give them what they want. You know, it works very well. Right uh,
0: now, GMT has done that with their. They have a P five hundred and
1: yeah, they let you buy in, as it were, and right. if you get the five hundred. They can break even and they publish it. That's right. very successful. That was very smart. Yeah. Uh, but we had we had the same we had the same deal because our feedback and our sales. Uh, I did I did I readily did regression analysis on that, and it was like 0. 0.9 something, which is unheard of. But I mean, it was very close. Basically, if you give people what they want, they will buy it. Uh, but that only worked uh, on, on our scale. Uh, uh, while there was a large number of gamers, at when I left SPI uh, Strategy and Tactics was at its peak about thirty-five thousand, and it declined after that. Not so much because I left. But because of the trends, which I was telling everybody, you know, winter is coming, so to speak, That's <laughs> use another uh, right. social phenomenon, um, and winter did arrive. But there are still – there's still a market uh, for those older-type games. I mean, most of the SBI games are out of print, although there's a lively market, you know, in secondhand. They're trading, uh, continuing the trade. The prices keep going up, um, and Decision Games has been publishing – Uh, you know, refurbishing a little bit and publishing the ones that basically uh, come out best in their surveys. Uh, So, you know, they've done a
0: they've done deluxe uh, versions of some of the games. Um, They've uh, taken some of the bigger games. In fact, um, let's let's get into that a little bit. But before I get into uh, where you're. I, your best sellers or your highest ranked games are, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, ask Al and Austin, and then I'll, I'll pitch in. Uh, Al, what do you think Jim's best game was?
1: I'm still really, uh, going back to 1914, I think it was not necessarily the most spectacularly good game, but it had so many new ideas that showed you what, the system could
0: do what gaming could do what were yeah. some of those and, al? I, and
1: I made up for the for the things i did wrong because as al pointed out it was the first game a lot of new ideas but a lot of a lot of not of the finesse that i came to admire later the best world war one game i i felt was the little world war game, y- yes. one game yes we had a strategic map and that really put the whole war into perspective. I mean, we later did, you know, uh, a game. Was it nineteen? What the hell was it? Um, there was another a sim- more simpler game. Um, uh, the one with the Plan Seventeen rule. What the hell was the name of that game? Anyway, uh, uh, and uh, and we also did uh, war, uh, World War One games on the Eastern Front, uh, which which did fairly well. Right. Again, you did
0: Tannenberg local. and Tannenberg
2: was uh, one yeah. of those. Yeah, uh, we yeah. would have right.
1: done more if if people had asked for them, but they didn't. I right. mean, we kept rolling it out in the feedback, but basically, people that didn't phase people say, like, "Oh God, they keep beating this dead horse." Um, but occasionally, we'd spur their interest, and we do one. And none of them were were blockbusters, but they all made money. So what can right. you do?
0: Um, now, World War One, I, uh, I wanted to talk about that one a little bit. Uh, it is I actually just got a picked up a copy of it off of eBay. Like you said, there's a a pretty good uh, market of reselling strategy and tactics and SPI games, and that game, uh, Decision Games did a deluxe version of it where they yeah. expanded it some. But I've got to tell you, Jim. Th- you know, when you look at it, the rules for that are only seven pages long, but it yeah. is so tight and so well done that uh, you know I've got to think that that's almost one of the best designs that
1: you've you did. A good design on a, on a nasty war. Uh, I mean, the basic problem of World War I was such a slog, uh, and even even in uh, 1914 when there was a lot of movement. Uh, you don't get much, and then, boom, you hit the wall. Uh, and uh, I did. I paid attention to uh, historical realism. Again, that's uh, like with, it's more so than the Jutland, which was a naval battle. I mean, there were a lot of ways that could have gone. Um, uh, and, but with World War One, you know, we, we could validate, validate it. <coughs> validate it, we did. Uh, this was something that... That, shockingly, uh, people down in the professional war games business in Washington uh, were only vaguely aware. In fact, a lot of them said, validate? What's that? Uh, but there were a few people down there like Andy Marshall and a few others who knew all about you know, validating and the lack of it uh, because the politics got involved. You know, This is what we want. We don't care what is. Uh, Russia's had an even worse case of that, um, and it's still a problem to this day. Uh, I don't care what reality says. I want this, you know. Bingo, uh, Vietnam in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, because I, la- I later found out they did a lot of war gaming on Vietnam. You know, early on throughout the war, and they, it was like the poor guy in the Russian Stavka, who, the new guy was told, "All right, uh, uh, game out what's going to happen if we attack today in, in NATO." And the guy comes. They, the, as years went by, the guy says, "Oh, we're not going to win." And then it came back, we're losing. That's what, that was the message in the 1980s. So you got a regular stream of guys being exiled off to a remote you know, scientific city uh, to uh, ponder his ways, his errant ways. But the, uh, uh, nowadays, you have a, 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 two generations of officers, uh, and this began in the mid-'70s when they had me down at uh, lecturing classes at the Army War College, and I gave them a quick class. And uh, and I I got feedback eventually from brigade commanders. Uh, uh, well, actually, at least one four star general. What the hell was his name? But anyway, um, the, the advice I gave him, I says, the war gamers are everywhere, <laughs> and I says <laughs> just put the word out uh, in your unit if you, if you want some of that talent, and you'll have a bunch of officers and and you know uh, you know perhaps too bright uh, uh, enlisted guys. Uh, You know, willing to help you out. Now, in the 70s, this was a lot easier because the the draft was gone. I was all volunteer. But even when I was in in the 60s, in my artillery battalions with about 300 guys, uh, there was easily maybe 10, 12 war gamers, enlisted and officer. Um, And uh, that, that was rather surprising. But they're there. And uh, they're still there. And you have people who uh, came up through the ranks, officers in particular. I don't think there's many sinks, you know, the the, uh, combatant commanders in the uh, geographic commands, um, who don't know what the war game is, the importance of validation, or have key people on their staffs who do. Uh, Another bit of irony in all that, uh, in my researches, and I think Al might have seen this too, uh, General Patton did a uh, after action report. Remember those big uh, volumes, Al? Mm-hmm. It was uh, truck uh, Yeah, but Pattons was most illustrative because he surrounded himself with very sharp you know staff officers. That's something he doesn't, he doesn't get much credit for, but it was he understood it and he saved his butt more than once. But in the analysis, going into uh, going into France, uh, he came in and, in effect on the second wave. Uh, he uh, he had already done terrain analysis, uh, analysis of the relative uh, cap- combat capabilities of American and Russian and German divisions. The Germans took one step further. They analyzed allied divisions and gave them a ranking. It was sort of a numeric, alphanumeric ranking, what have you, and how dangerous they were. And uh, we got a hold of all that well during and after the war. And it was surprising. I mean, the, the uh, German approach was, you know, analytical, like uh, Trevor Dupy, Colonel Dupie, right. and his uh, numbers in combat war, whatever that that's a great book out there. Oh, yeah. And the it, prediction. It he, book. Hero is what I. It, it, that was the organization, which was yeah. around until right. I think recently. But anyway, he uh, uh, he he scarfed up a lot, a lot of that information. And basically, can uh, you know, confirm what the Germans had found. And right. I think-
0: I've got on my reading list right now, uh, as I go into a, a four week downtime because of some medical issues, uh, I am reading his Battle of the Bulge book, uh, which is yeah. all based upon his numeric research that he collected from the Germans and and uh the ally stuff so yeah,
1: and uh... I, I saw i saw a lot of him because he recognized that you know we were he was doing it differently than we were he was more a correlation of forces i never said it said that to him but uh when i got to learn more about the russian way of doing it that's what they were doing and in fact the russians even before the bolsheviks took over were very much into the german style of analytical you know uh, study of warfare and some of the best books uh, I we ever encountered on uh, what was going on, especially on the Eastern Front of World War One, uh, were these books translated into English, you know, from Russian. I think Al, you remember that? Uh, what the hell was it? Anyway, they, they, oh, yeah. they, they did enormous yeah, analysis. It was uh, uh, it was Russian casualties in the twentieth century, I think. No, 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 that came at the end. Yeah, but before that. They had done uh, the, some books on uh, on World War I analysis, uh, apparently published before World War II, uh, got out, got translated. Uh, I, my Russian was never good enough to read a lot of them in the original without a lot of pain and effort. But I did. I got some of their, their World War II stuff because one thing I, I discovered from the CIA was that you could buy a lot of these books. They were widely distributed in Russia. Uh, and, uh, and you know uh, it, it, they were obtainable. The CIA had them. The Air Force translated. They had a translation service and what have you. Um, but yeah, that last one, the uh, casualties of the uh, of uh, 20 wars in the 20th century, mainly you know World War II, uh, was a real milestone and an eye opener. That's when we found out that the Russians lost 18 percent of their population during World War uh, II. Uh, most of them civilians killed, you know, as side effects, as it were, collateral damage uh, to the to the uh, combat. But even then, they lost 10 million soldiers, uh, and that was a secret until the end of the Cold War. That was a state secret because they didn't want people to know how we, I suppose, Russians too, <laughs> the uh, how badly Russia was hurt. Yeah. Uh, uh, they they always called it a glorious victory it was it was basically a damn we won victory you know as they stood in a smoldering you know wreckage that was uh, you know uh, uh, western russia um, but uh, anyway we uh, we basically all fed on that data uh, the, the war manual, war gamers used it differently than than Trevor Dupy did. Uh, in fact, a lot of people that, that books I've written, uh you know read recently about uh, the uh, <clears throat> especially in since Trevor's died because he sued everybody you know inside for the least you know cause. Uh, except I never got sued. I mean, I I knew, I knew his reputation. I just tippy-toed around him carefully. Uh, he uh, uh, he was somewhat discredited because he basically bent his numerical method. He didn't use the, the, the looser method that the uh, war gamers used. Uh, and uh, that, that took something away from his work. But the thing that stands is his statistical analysis, collection of data and what have you. And uh, that's still, you know, the, the gold standard, as it were. Yeah, the, uh, the
0: book was Numbers, Prediction, and... Yes, and war, yeah, war. and yeah. the uh, from what I understand, I've got the first edition, but I'm actually looking for the second edition, which is really hard to find. Where he cleaned up his numbers, yeah. uh, and uh, so because um, there were some apparently some errors in the first edition, but uh, all his stuff is is great. Yeah, and I mean, he tips his hat to the war gamers in numbers predictions and war, and and talks about. Uh, the great work that, and he was referring to SPI, uh, the, the, the good work that you guys were doing.
2: If you look, look at uh, his, uh, Trevor Dupuis' a testimony to the uh, House Armed Services Committee, I'm going to say it was in January of 1991, just before uh, Desert Storm, he's put on the spot, and if I recall correctly, it was Les Aspen who was head of of uh, the House of Representatives of that committee at the time as to how many casualties that the uh, Allied Coalition would take if a ground rule war erupted in, uh, in, in, in in out of Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the number was, I, I'm doing, a, a, the number 438 sticks in my head for some reason, but I think that was the actual number. He said about 450 was he had done doing his uh, his calculations. And this was at the time that you were having these published figures in uh, the usual uh, sensationalist media of 20,000 or 100,000 dead, including civilians uh, uh, and the like. And uh, I, I recall looking at uh, a a clip of, of that uh, testimony, mm, maybe 94, 95 on this, and thinking remarkable work i just just put a, a a little uh spi jim dunnigan frame around it In that uh, war game i did arabian night uh, nightmare when jim and i were fiddling with numbers and I, I did it on the back of a of an envelope i wish i'd kept it i came up with about 1500 yeah and that was because uh and i About four or five play tests, including one that Mark Herman was involved in when I was up in Washington. There was always an incident where an Iraqi unit managed to hit an American unit uh, that was uh, exploiting uh, uh, exploiting a gap. And when you're you're hit on a flank or the rear, even with modern weapons like surprise, you're gonna risk taking big casualties. The reason I'm not get off on that, but uh, Jim's made the point we're using similar methods. Okay, so and, and,
1: Austin. And, and, and an an important aspect of the of the Gulf War was that was the first combat test. Uh, the post Vietnam all volunteer army. Now we all knew what well, you know those of us who studied it that the training was much higher. It was much more realistic. Yep. They had Absolutely. the National uh, Training Center, um, but we didn't realize how much of a difference it would make. But uh, as Austin was pointing out, we didn't know that something like 73 Easting, you know, what happened at one yeah. battle where the 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 armored cav unit got uh, ran into a uh, Republican Guard armor division, and basically destroyed it. Uh, that mm-hmm. was not something you could predict unless you had could adjust for the value of the training, the relative value of training. Now there were also stories coming out before the fighting, the ground fighting started. Uh, in one case, the, uh, the the Iraqis raided a Saudi uh, border town. Uh,
2: Kofji, and, Kofji and, was that yeah, attack.
1: they Kofji. were repulsed by the uh, by the what do you call it the uh, the White Army, the uh, you know the the tribal army, the mm-hmm. National Guard, and uh, it was fairly bloody. But uh, I think it was General, but the guy was in charge of the American guy. Um, he went up there, and and this was published. And he just he just inspected the wreckage and whatnot, and he was rather surprised at the poor state of maintenance of the uh, of the Iraqi vehicles. You know, they rode in with some armored vehicles and some and trucks and what have you, and a lot of them didn't make it back. But you know, even though a da- even a damaged truck, a disabled truck, uh, you know, a, a practiced eye, as it were, <laughs> who'd been you know observing the uh, the maintenance levels of uh, units. For many years, he looked. and said, "Boy, they aren't cleaning these things. It's, this thing looks like it's going to, you know, have a, have a, have a, you know, a basic an engine failure, or it's not getting lubed. Uh, you know, little things that add up, mm. and that's really basically what 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 uh, eviscerated the yeah. uh, the Iraqis. Even right. The Republican Guard they had, you know, they were all handpicked. They were Sunni Arabs." They were picked for loyalty, but they got the best equipment and what have you, and they got the uh, most training. But again, uh, the Iraqis and Arab armies in general, they don't pay a lot of attention to the peacetime detail, Uh, and and that's one reason why they they keep failing compared to, say, the Israelis or anybody else or the the Western armies that went up against them uh, in the Gulf War. So that was basically a reality check, an adjustment. Right. Yes, hey, that point on, Austin, so
2: since uh, yeah, I want to make I want to okay. this is this is really interesting. I'll be be brief on it, but Jim, seventy-three Easting was the exact kind of the little armor attack that yeah. one coming in on a flank that we uh, that we got in the game, and it's mm-hmm. hard as heck to come up with casualty estimates on that because this is where history informs uh, war gaming. But that and by the way, McMaster was in that was second armored cavalry mm-hmm. regiment. That, yeah. That, yeah. That, uh, yeah, you know, well, Dan, you were going to ask me a question.
0: Yes, uh, before that, since we've been talking about the Quate War, if anybody wants to do, uh, Austin's was a tac- uh, you know, a grand tactical strategic game, but if you want to do the battles, uh, there Frank uh, Chadwick did a game called Sands of War, and I think it was a, his expansion that you can do the game, do. Um, the quake battles at the tactical level. He also wrote a great book. uh, And so did Jim and Jim and Al on desert storm. uh, But he wrote one that was uh, called desert shield that he got out, before Desert Storm even started, which is is real
1: interesting. Are, are,
2: you, are you talking about from Shield to Storm, Jim oh, sh- Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Shield to no, Storm. No, that we was the, we we got the uh, the uh, Arabian that, Nightmare game out before the fighting started.
2: That's right. right. It, it, it was the original came out in in, in December of 19, 1990. Dan, I, you, you know, you were talking about the how those compact rules back uh, in the, the World War One game that Jim dead really at the strategic level on that and you said you thought it was really clean the word i use to describe a game like that with rules like that is elegant yeah and, Okay. and I've, I've used this on jim before I, i'm pretty sure i've dropped that uh, dropped that uh, on al and and it's it's because it all works together real well and you were you ask al you know mentioned you know top flight games. That,
0: right, and that's what I was going to ask you next. Wait, what yeah, was your
2: I was going to add something about 1940. I was uh, I think a senior in high school when that came out and my debate partner, Roger Stewart, who later ended up being on uh, Admiral Rickover's staff after he got, got out of college, brilliant guy. Instead of working on our our debate, uh, uh, the, the, the debate problems, we'd play 1914. And uh, it, I was just struck by how detailed it was. And, and you, you're looking at, you know, somebody who's a history freak. Uh, and I was thinking, good. Gosh, this—I'm—I'm I'm really getting to try to experiment uh, <laughs> with this. I'm just—just the Al's was on target with with that. But the, the two games, I think. Ah, uh, Panzer Group Guderian, for one thing, but about the way that you use, uh, Jim, you get a tactical feel out of an operational uh, 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 game, and it's it's kind of exciting to play too. But the other one is Bulge, which is I think that came out, Jim, when in 19- 1980. Yes. Yeah, seventy
0: nine, right? And it
1: got remarketed
0: as the Big Red One, the truck tie-in to the movie. Of, that
1: was part of the deal with, uh, with I forget who it was, Paramount or whatever, right. uh, To get the rights to um, uh the the uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings was we had to do another game that had a tie-in tie into something they were doing, and so we had the Bulge game. I, I had not yet or I, I don't believe. And we said, okay, we'll just call it the big red one. And they were pleased, uh, very pleased. Now, one reason why the bulge game was so elegant, that was about the sixth game on the battle of the bulge. I did. Um, and one thing that always, uh, hacked me off. Well, initially the first bulge game that Larry Pinsky did for Avalon Hill, it didn't have a lot of the, the historical detail that was available, but they didn't know about being I mean, down in Washington. Yeah. The world war two records branch and various other places that were open to the public. Um, but I got all that data, and uh, I did. I did have some very complex games. That was early on. That was nineteen seventy seventy one. A Bastone, I think it was called something like that. But really, I understood that the 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 attraction of the Avalon Hill game was was simple. It was accurate enough, but it was very simple. And I said, I can outdo do that. And so what happened with the ball game was I had all this knowledge. In A, the, the Battle of the Bulge, and gaming the Battle of the Bulge, I could confidently go in there and basically cut out a lot of the fat, as it were, um, and concentrate just on the key elements. And that's what made it, you know, a classic. Same thing with Napoleon at Waterloo. Yes, you know, and, uh, and that's in your. That's
0: in the yeah. Board Game Geek Top 25 for you is uh, yeah,
1: Napoleon uh, at Waterloo. You know, you hang around Al Nofi long enough, you learn a lot about Napoleonic Warfare. <laughs> uh, so, I'm sorry, so now, that's be, too be, funny. Be, be, be poking a bayonet in my back, keep it, keep it right, keep it wrong, keep it accurate. Uh, and uh. Uh, that and, of course, that was that was designed from the get-go as a simple introductory game, so we couldn't mess around.
2: Yeah, but it was it's it really not simple, Jim. That That's the thing. It get, well, you, like it, chess
1: it's, is, is, it, is simple. You know, it, it had all the basic elements there, but they were accessible. You know, somebody, a lot of people who weren't even war gamers, I said, look, think of it as glorified chess. That worked for games like, uh, Napoleon at Waterloo, probably with the Bulge too. In fact, that was the whole idea behind the Quad Games. I says, why don't we do a whole bunch of these damn things? Mm-hmm. Uh, the blue and the all- gray series, right? And the, and a whole bunch of Napoleonic games, right? Uh, modern period games, uh, and and of course, as as you think you've already pointed out, uh, decision games. You know, uh, when they surveyed, they said these things are still popular. Because you know, they're beer and pretzels games. You can sit down, yeah. you can be half in the bag, and you can still get something out so, of it. So Napoleon uh, at Waterloo
0: had some significant legs because SPI uh, published it in several different formats, and then Decision Games went on and did it again. But they took it one step further. They they put it out as a computer game. Yes. And yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I'll tell you the truth, I had a hard time getting my boys to play war games with me. But one of the ones that uh, I got one of them to play with me a couple of times was Napoleon at Waterloo because it, the rules were easy to explain and and they were able to play it with me.
1: Well, the thing with the, the, the computer games is if you, if you were good, and a lot of the game designers now or developers are good, you can make the rules uh, intuitive. The, right. you know, and that was always a problem. Nobody wants to read the rules. Like, hey, can you tell me how to play this game? <laughs> you know, we have the famous sign on the on the play on the play test room. You know, walls was R T F W, read right. the friggin' rules. <laughs> uh, and if they didn't know what that means, we we'd spell it out for them. You know, in the in the original language. Um, and uh, you know, it still aggravated people. I just I, I you know I tell the staff I say, look, the only solution to this is to keep it simple. Uh, and that's why I, I turned – I allowed, allowed Redmond free reign to institute his, his uh, you know, uh, codified system, literally, um, and uh, he basically uh, you know, had the, the authority, as it were, to throw rules back if they didn't comply with his clarity and organization rules, and that worked. I mean a lot of – there was a lot of grumbling. And uh, but, you know, the more experienced developers realized uh, that, you know, uh, a lot of people are going to get this game with no experience whatsoever in war games or not much or maybe only some old, you know, Avalon Hill games, uh, which which some tended to wander. uh, And that made a big difference. And I think that case system uh, is still in use. Yeah, it's still in place. And in
0: fact, when people wander from it, they hear from, uh, okay, this is
1: a game I'd like to play, but the rules are so crappy, I can't. And the same thing happened with computer games. Uh, you know, initially it was, they they were, they were were designed for programmers and that's always a mistake. I mean, I always hammered away, even at SBI. I told the developers and I I was, I've been doing that ever since because I'm still in software development. I says, you got to do this with the user in mind. And in this case, the user is a, is a professional currency or bond trader, or, you know, somebody who's got a lot of smarts, a lot of capability assets, but they're not computer made, even though a lot of them play computer games and whatnot. But that's the problem now, you know, the, the guy or gal in in some cases will come in and uh, we'll give them a new interface, you know, for our, our, our data system. It's, it's sort of like a Bloomberg system. And, um, uh, and they will complain and say, look what the hell? how do you get to get this bring this up? It's got to be intuitive. And finding out what intuitive is to your particular audience is not easy. A lot of it's trial and error. but that's something we did for the hobby. We basically did a lot of the trial and error. And as you pointed out, you know people who stray from the uh, you know the highly organized tight system, uh, you know, get feedback. And, that's, and It really gets back to writing in general. I, I think there was a, uh, some 18th century writer. He's, he wrote a letter and he says, I'm sorry this letter's so long. I didn't have time to do it briefly. Uh, and right. that is basically a, yeah, a catchphrase for I've writers in general ever since. And that's what we try to do in, um, you know, in Strategy Page. Uh, I sometimes wander on. But you know, uh, I i re- will reuse the same pieces over and over again, and I'll keep tightening them up. I can drop this, I can drop that, uh, and they get better and better. And people don't complain because a lot of these pieces—they people go in there, they haven't seen any of the older pieces, and all they realize is, hey, this new stuff is tight as hell, and I can read it in three minutes. I understand what the heck's going on with this or that. Right. Uh, and it's the same with the games. You know, they, the rules can be an obstacle to playing, much less enjoying the game. Uh, and so, so been... I'm going
0: to tell you the game that I uh, I don't know if it's, you know, uh, I know it's in the top 25 on Board Game Geek for you. Um, it's maybe not your best design, but it was the most enjoyable for me, was uh, Time Tripper. and yes. That go-
1: <laughs> that was one of my that was one of my favorites i mean again that was just a couple of brilliant ideas executed you know elegantly and that turned out to be you know a, a, a it's still a favorite uh, I did a little surveying of BoardGameGeeks and Grocknard.com or what have you to see what the most popular one was. And I was rather pleased. You know, this is time tripper. Have you ever seen that? And then there, I'd read down the message thread and they said, Oh yeah, I hadn't heard of that. Not that's a Dunnegan game. Uh, you know, well if it's simple and fun, it's probably a Dunnegan game. But a lot of guys working at SPI, uh, you know, Greg Ostikian in particular, he picked up on that. And he, while he was while he was developing games for SPI, he did like the Creature That Shouldn't. Yes. Uh, very simple, and it God knows they they spun off uh, God knows how many you know variants on that for for your favorite city being destroyed by a monster. Uh, but if you can design a basic system that is clean and elegant, you can usually apply it to a lot of games. And so we did that. We had game systems. Uh, which we uh, often apply to half a dozen or more games with just minor variations, obviously different order of battle, different map, et cetera. And we'd add things. And Panzer Group Guderian benefited from that. I forget what the system was. I think it was our operational game system in general. But again, each game demands uh, <laughs> some unique elements. And of course, the thing with Panzer Group Guderian was the, uh, the intelligence. Now, normally we leave intelligence out, but here you've got a situation where the Russians and the Germans both were ignorant of which Russian units were good. <laughs> That's a somewhat unique situation. Usually, once both sides have a fairly, you know, good idea of which units they can depend on, which they can't. The Russians couldn't, and so the simple idea of putting that in there. And I think I, I used that first in the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War. Um, uh, and there was a discussion once when I'm saying, you know, I think I, I've seen this before, am I my it from somebody? And so I'm like, yeah, you borrowed it from yourself. You did it in the Franco-Prussian War. oh, okay. Uh, but it was much more important in Panzer Group Guderian. Uh it, it applies in a lot of battles, but in some cases it's crucial. And that was the case in, in the, the Franco-Prussian War and especially in Panzer Group Guderian. After that, after that first year of, of battles in um in Russia, there was no longer, you know, that was no longer a big factor. The Russians had a pretty good idea, you know, uh, who it was it was a death match, as it were, for the Russian army. Those who survived. You guys are pretty good. Keep it up. Um, but the problem was, after, you know, the war is over, how do you basically capture that and sustain it? And that's something the army picked up in the 70s after the Vietnam War uh, with the National Training Center and, again, and one of those there there uh, well, two things they were doing in the seventies that I got mixed up with reintroducing the study of history <laughs> in the in the army and bringing back war games. That's a whole other story, but basically, you know we were the place to go because we were doing it uh, in fact, you know i I didn't realize that there was a market for contemporary games until a bunch of guys down at the uh, infantry school got on my case. And I said, okay, you know, send me send me the following manuals, which I knew, you know, I would probably use a bingo, This box shows up. And that was, uh, what was that? Mech War? Not Mech War. Uh, uh,
0: well, there was that. Mech War 77 that you did, but you yeah, uh, did something first... before that, and I can't remember yeah, what let it was. Me see. I'm
1: looking at the list here. American Combat, not Combat Command, uh, Red Star, White Star. Yeah, that was it. That was, was it, Star. yeah. Yeah. And oh, we got another surprise was science fiction games. Now, Redmond Simonson was a big science fiction fan, and a lot of the gamers were. I mean, we'd have that question, I think, when he first expressed his was, uh, desire to says, us to do uh, science uh, fiction games. Again, the feedback system was not just used to find out what the customers wanted. It was used to settle any squabbles that were among the staff. Uh, you know, everybody considered themselves an expert, whether they admitted it or not. And I was the first one to say, look, I don't know. I'm going to ask the customers, and so that sort of settled down some of the larger and more out, you know outrageous egos floating around. There were no shortage of those, um, and uh, so we asked questions about you know science fiction, and bingo, it came back. and I think Remmy did the first one. Uh, what the heck was the name of that uh, uh, star something or other? Right.
0: Yeah, he did he did that series and I'm trying to remember what the first one was. The he I'm, did I'm, uh, the follow-up on was Outreach and Star Soldier, but uh he's actually recognized for that first one of doing some uh, very innovative things and uh it's um he, he had uh he had uh, psychic powers in it and a bunch of other stuff.
1: So Yeah. Uh the <clears throat> The thing with, uh, with Redman, he, he proposed and he got involved in a couple of games. Uh, he, <laughs> he didn't practice what he preached. Uh, his games were often convoluted. And so I learned early on to quietly slip him some of the best developers and I told him, look, if he if he bites your head up, come to me. I'll put the head back on, and I'll I'll make it all better. Uh, and Redman understood that. I mean, I, I told him point blank one on one a couple of times. I says, you know, yeah, yeah. And he sort of grimaced at me. Uh, he didn't take criticism uh, well, especially when it came to art matters. But in design questions, you know, and, and the feedback and the rules, he understood he had, he was hoisting on his own petard because he himself embraced the, uh, you know, the, these tight rules. But I said, you also have to have a tight gaming system. Um, and he eventually accepted that. But again, it involved a lot of, you know, to and fro and a lot of one-on-one discussions and what have you. Uh, he was very, I mean, that was part of his, his talent. He was very demanding. He demanded much of himself and anybody working for him unfortunately, he would sometimes apply that to see people who weren't working for him, who just happened to be in his way when a little death breath came out. Uh, but, you know, I, I again, I joked with him early on. Uh, I said, look, I understand you're the creative in terms of art and what have you. I will not ever, you know, uh, trespass on that and I will spread the word to others. And he said, yeah, you know, as temperamental artists, I said, yeah, temperamental artist. But anyway, uh you know, he was—he was, he was just—he—he he could control that more than you can control the design of games. That was a little more difficult. It was it was like herding cats, uh, and that's why we always had a hard time getting you know good management in there to supervise the uh, the developers. I was running the damn company, so I—I I, you know initially I did it, but once we got larger and larger, I had more than any other things to attend to. And uh, Terry Hardy was good, but we couldn't pay him as much as he was making, you know, with a, you know, in the, in the corporate world. Brad Hessel wasn't too bad. He was, he, he turned out pretty good over time. Uh, but again, herding cats. And in fact, the ultimate uh, uh, solution for that problem was to, uh, uh, by the late seventies, it was possible to farm out and they basically solicit games uh from outside you know from independent developed uh, designers we got a couple of those early on some of them were very good like winter war uh, but a lot of them were crude but once redmond had his system which we published in one of those war game design books you right. know we, we gave all the the tricks of the trade away so to speak so I did, we could tell people look if you want to design a game for us and I I, I went out I went on with this on the outgoing mail, the uh, you know the ed- outgoing editorial, as it were, I wrote for every issue of Strategy and Tactics. I said this is how you do it, and we started to get more coming in. And of course, what I wanted to do towards the end, when I saw the contraction coming because of the the, the computer games uh, growing in uh, growing in uh, uh, popularity, even if they weren't graphic yet. Well, some were sort of graphic, but it was pretty crude. Uh, I said, look, you know, we got to contract. We got to basically rely more on outsourcing, uh, you know, independent uh, uh, designers and developers. Uh, and he, Rebman didn't really want to give up on that. He liked having all his people as were in-house. Uh, but, you know, uh, that was something that eventually happened, you know, <laughs> no matter what anybody said. Right. Uh, because uh, nowadays, uh, it's almost all outside submissions. You know, it's remote. Uh, yeah including the
0: developers of of or
1: exactly but yeah. with, with the internet you can do that you can get away with that. Uh, I came in in ninety eight to come back in eighty nine ninety one uh, there was some you know uh, networking I was on CompuServe and the genie at that time mm-hmm. uh, and I could I could recommend to uh, to people designing games for us to uh, get onto one of those systems and to email me files and what have you. Uh, and save yourself a lot of trouble. I mean, the future was coming, but it wasn't fast enough for me. Uh, and that's another technolo- technologist disease. But anyway... Well, the, let's now, let's talk now, about um, something that we haven't talked about. You mentioned it. You just
0: mentioned it, but you have in the top 25 on Board Game Geek, you did a number of uh, modern stuff. Uh, you did The Next War, which was... Yeah. A monster again, right? Yeah, but again, you did
1: simple, simple, simple mechanics. It was, right. It was, a big, it was
0: a large, simple game. And then Berlin '85 and Fifth Corps were very popular.
1: Yes. Uh, now the uh, they were they were simple, and some people criticized uh, us for that. But again, these were situations that never, you know, actually became reality. Thank God. Um, and uh, but if you compare those game systems, if you applied it and I think some people have, uh, to, uh, to contemporary situations that have become actual wars, you'll see that they did stand up. Uh, again, you, it's, you make much better adjustments if you're, uh, if you're validating against a historical event where it actually took place. Uh, but I pointed out from the beginning to the guys down at Benning, I said, look, uh, you know, we can do it, but we're going to basically be validating it against historical examples Uh, Well, at that point, we had the 73 war. Well, uh, several wars with the Arabs and Israelis, and they they were a font of of, uh, reality check information. Um, But when you go farther into the future, you know, it turns into fantasy. Uh, But then again, we found out that fantasy games are tremendously uh, uh, popular. You know, after the science fiction games uh, went out there, we started doing fantasy stuff. Well, we already knew Dungeons and Dragons was very popular uh, but we also found out that uh, fantasy board games uh, did very well. In fact, my outdoor survival game became such a bestseller. I later found out because it it was adopted by a lot of D and D players as a strategic game system to set up, you know, their actual, you know, tactical, you know, uh, uh, battles, as it were. Right. Uh, and. Um, uh, that's something that is is still the case. Uh, your computerized games often have a a strategic game that can you can drill down into a tactical game. In fact, Anzio Beachhead uh, was like that. Uh, no, Italy, Italy. Yeah, whatever, whatever. There was a game we had where you had the 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 a uh, strategic game of the entire Italian front. And then, yeah, you had it feeding into what was going on at Anzio. I think that was the way it worked. Uh, you don't have a lot of opportunities to do that, but that was a case where it demanded it. I mean, what was going on at Anzio, and what could have gone on at Anzio? I mean, that could have been a a, a, a dramatic victory if we hadn't hesitated, you know, in in, in getting out of the bridgehead. Um, but the uh, the Germans had to basically uh, respond in the in the, we, uh, respond in the correct way, and they did because that was their doctrine. Uh, so you have a lot of these ideas, which are, which are basically timeless. You just have to recognize it and use them. Right.
0: So
2: can um, I, I make a, yeah. a point? You were talking about NATO uh, games in the mid to late, uh, late 70s. And were looking, you know, tried, you know, Red Star, White Star and the like. W- weren't you thinking of firefight? I think that
1: was no, no. Yeah. That came later. That came later. Firefight was done— well, that
2: was for... seventy six or seventy seven, Jim. Well, yeah,
1: but Firefight. it was done for the army. At that point, they'd they'd hired us as it were.
2: Right. Well, to try well,
1: and introduce gaming. Mean, those are the games you came across. But before that, oh, no,
2: I got to play test it for seven. I know. Quarter. I know. I mean, what a what a complete. That's that's a difference.
1: now, see, the thing is, the NATO game, which uh, which I did. I think partially uh, to, to, uh, to uh, provide something that the Army War College needed, for the, which turned into the mechanic theater model. Uh, they liked that. They played, a, they played the heck out of those. I mean, we sold a lot of copies. They gave a couple of freebies. They felt like a crack dealer. Yeah, free samples. You got to buy the rest. And, right. uh, but they found it, it was accessible, uh, and, uh, and it was accurate enough. And but then they they got the uh, the uh the theater model, which computerized the whole operation, so you could do it, you know, as a classroom exercise, um, and that got the ball rolling as far as developing a, a generation of, of senior uh, military leaders who knew what the hell this could do and how it did it, and that right. made all the difference in the world.
0: Well, we haven't had time to talk about everything um mainly i've picked uh, titles that uh, we hadn't talked about before but uh, if people go and look they'll see that uh there are others there, but they're they're covered well, in our other episodes. we can do episodes.
1: one or two more sessions because I'm looking at the list of my games. Right. <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, I could tell you something about this one, about that one, about that one. Yeah, I'd say about you know 20 percent of the games I did, I, I really thought were came out very well. A lot of them right. came out well enough, and there were a few turkeys. But anyway, uh, uh, that's worth re- uh, you know recounting because again, some of the things we okay. learned in doing
0: those games is still uh, is still valid. Hey, well, we're in control of this, so we'll, we'll figure out. I One of the games that we're actually going to spend a whole episode on is Empires of the Middle Ages. Uh, yeah. And uh, we're going to talk about it as a board game, and then we're going to talk about how it moved on to the computer. Uh, yeah. And the computer game uh, we were all involved with to uh, some extent. Uh, but uh, Empires of the Middle Ages is another one that Decision Games... Uh, reprinted and uh, because of its uh, popularity
2: I used I used that game uh, I taught a a strategy and strategic theory class in the honors program at the University of Texas for 15 years and I used empires of the Middle Ages to give them an idea of how to look at uh, long-term actions through history yeah. And it does it. It captures it.
0: Now, one of the interesting things is my understanding about Empires of the Middle Ages was that Eric Lee Smith took that system and converted it into a science fiction game called The Sword in the Stars. Is that correct?
1: Uh, freedom in the Galaxy. I think there was freedom, it was Freedom in the Galaxy. Again, I'm a little vague on the okay. details. This is 40, 50 yeah. years ago. yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Freedom in the Galaxy was sort of a uh, let's do Star Wars, uh, but let's not get sued for
1: it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. So and yet, and, even systems like Empires of the Middle Ages, which you think be a one off uh, is applicable. In fact, we discussed that doing a 20th century version. um and, and, of course, there were the success of The Origins of World War II, which is a very popular, very playable game. Right. I know a lot of non-gamers who got off on that one. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay. Well, we'll do another session then. Uh the one of the things I was thinking about too, is when we wrap this whole thing up is that maybe our last session, we could do some question and answers, have people post questions over on uh, YouTube and then I'll get on bonding with board games and do another session with them and ask their listeners to post some questions for you. What do you think about that? Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll wrap this up for today because uh, we're, we're pressed for time uh, in our real lives. Uh, this is our enjoyable part of our life, and now we've got to go back to the real world. But uh, thanks uh, for uh, being here, gentlemen, and we'll talk to you next time.
2: Bye, Thank Dan. You. Bye. Bye, guys. All right. take